It's good to have you with us today. Glad y'all could make it. Hope everybody's doing okay. We're a little bit different setting today. Uh, and no, somebody did not bring donuts, unfortunately. So we'll just have to sit at the table and, and pretend we got donuts. Um, but we're continuing our study in Isaiah. And we're in session six today. Again, uh, we missed a Sunday, so I'm still just keeping on with the lessons in order. Um, I haven't skipped any lessons, so I'm just going to keep on doing that. And uh, I think it'll be all right. But we're still in, we're in session six today. And this is uh, Isaiah 31 and uh, verses 1 through 9. But it also talks a little bit about the verses or the chapters rather leading up to it. And if you remember, last week we talked about Israel's or, or Judah's situation rather. And you remember who was Judah afraid of? We talked about this last time. What nations was Judah afraid of? They were trying to get an alliance with somebody to save them from these nations. Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom. So they were afraid, and Ahaz went to Assyria, right? And he goes to Assyria and says, Assyria, instead of trusting God, he goes to Assyria and he says, Assyria, help me out here. I got two enemies on the northern border, and they're going to kill me unless you help me. And Assyria says, sure, I'll help you out. So they come and they lay waste to uh, Syria and they lay waste to Israel. And they basically leave a small remnant in Israel. And from this point forward, the prophet refers to the northern kingdom Israel as Ephraim. So when you see the word Ephraim, that means Israel. Because that's all that's left. It's just a small portion. But what's interesting is what happens after that. As you would expect, Assyria didn't do this out of the goodness of their heart. They didn't say, oh, we love, you, uh, we love you, Judah, we'll come and help you, and we don't expect anything in return. No, what happens is Assyria says, yeah, we helped you, now you pay us. And Judah now has to pay a tribute to Assyria. And this, of course, is weakening the country. Anytime you pay tribute, your country gets weaker, and your economy crashes, and your people starve. And your military gets weaker. And so they're paying this tribute to Judah, or rather to, to Assyria. And they say, well, we can't keep doing this. This is bad. So what do they do? They trust in God and say, God save us from Assyria. No, they don't do that. That would be the smart thing to do. But what they do is they say, hey, we need an alliance with somebody else. So what do they do? They go to Egypt and say, Egypt helped us. Assyria is forcing us to pay tribute. We don't like that. They're making us weak. So Egypt, help us. What do they think Egypt's going to do? Do they think Egypt's going to do it out of the goodness of their heart? So the Judahites are not being very intelligent. It's just sort of like you're being threatened by a mobster. So you go to another mobster and say, help me take care of this mobster. And he says, sure, but it's going to cost you. And then you go to another mobster and say, help me take care of this mobster. And he says, sure, but it's going to cost you. And so the Judahites are not being very smart. The kings of Judah are not paying attention to what they're doing. And instead of trusting God, they're trusting in their own schemes. So, and that's where we are in the chapters leading up to 31. God pronounces doom. If you read 28 and 29 and 30, He pronounces doom on Syria and Israel and uh, Syria, I mean, uh, uh, Egypt. And then He pronounces doom on Judah. And if you read, I want to read you this part because this is interesting. It's very similar to what we're going to talk about. But this is in Isaiah 30. 
Listen to what God says in Isaiah 30, chapter 30, verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, and who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. So God is telling his people, hey, dummy, why are you going to Egypt? They're not going to help you. They're just humans. You should be trusting in me. I'm God. I'm the one who saved you out of Egypt and now you want to go back to Egypt? You were slaves in Egypt. Why are you going back to Egypt? They're just going to put you in slavery again. And don't you think that's a lot like what we do? We trust in our plans. We say, well, I've got a plan. And I'm going to fix my situation. I've gotten myself in a bad situation, but I can fix it by the strength of my hand and by the smarts in my head. And we, we don't trust God. And we try to take care of it ourselves. And what happens? Usually goes bad, doesn't it? Usually falls apart on us, doesn't it? And God says, why are you trusting in the strength of your hand? You're just a human. I'm God. I'm the one who saved you. And going back to Egypt is a lot like we do when we get saved and we still sin. We were dead in our sin. God saved us from our sin. And we still go back to our sin. And God is like, why? I saved you from that so you wouldn't be chained in your sin. You were chained up in your sin. You were a slave to sin. But you still keep going back to it. You still keep doing the same thing. And that's because we live in a fallen world. It's because we live in a fallen world and we're sinful humans. And so we can't help ourselves but keep going back to our sin over and over again. But the important thing is we need to repent of our sin and say, I can't keep doing this. And then you go back to God and God has mercy on us. And he forgives us of our sin. But this is what Judah was doing. They were going back to the chains of their slavery in Egypt to be enslaved by Egypt once more. And God says, why are you doing this? I'm God. Don't trust in Egypt. And so that's the story. That's the background to where we are now. So let's jump ahead to chapter 31 and pick up in our text. Um, so in this text, the, the kings of Judah want to go to Egypt and get help to uh, get out of the bondage of Syria. Uh, Syria. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and who depend on horses. They trust in the abundance of chariots and in the large number of horsemen. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel and they do not seek the Lord. So God is pronouncing judgment on His people and saying, Woe. And the word woe here, it uh, is a designation for extreme sorrow and extreme difficulty. Whenever somebody in the Bible pronounced woe, whenever God pronounced the word woe in the Bible, that meant bad things were going to happen. Remember the book of Revelation? They were called the seven woes, or the woes of the seven seals. Woe to the people, for the chariots have been loosed. Woe to the people, for the angel of death has been loosed. Woe, woe, woe. Anytime you see woe, that means bad things are going to happen. So God is pronouncing judgment on his people. He says, woe to you, because you messed up. You trusted in, in Egypt. And why did they trust in Egypt? Because Egypt was a strong military. The, using, the, using the example of the chariots, the chariot was the most advanced technology, militarily speaking, at the time. 
Not very many people had chariots. In fact, very, very few nations had chariots. And chariots gave a man an extremely good advantage on the battlefield. Because not only could you have the swiftness of riding a horse, but you had a stable platform to ride on so that you could shoot your arrows or throw your spears. Just a little bit of military history there for you. Uh, But the chariot was the most advanced military weapon at the time. And so the the Egyptians had the chariots. That meant they were a strong military. And God is saying, don't trust in the chariots. Yes, that's a strong military. Yes, that's a strong weapon. But don't trust in it because it's still human. And it's not God. I'm God. And so that shows us today, don't trust in the strength of what we have here on this earth. We have some really good weapons in our arsenal. We have some pretty powerful planes and boats and and guns and, and other vehicles. We have a pretty strong military. But it's nothing compared to the might of God. It's nothing compared to the power of God. We do not trust in the strength of the chariots. We trust in the God of uh, our God and we trust in Him alone. And it says to the Israelites in the end of verse 1, they, meaning the people of Judah, do not look to the Holy One of Israel and they do not seek the Lord. Why do you think they did that? Why do you think they didn't trust God? Why, why were they so reluctant to trust God? Any ideas? Any thoughts? Why would they be so? Why would they turn to Egypt and not say, "God save us"? I'm not maybe based on even what the way we do things now is we we tend to trust in the things we see and we can put our hands on, mm-hmm. and God's out there somewhere. Yeah, and yeah, that is that's part of it. Yes, they trusted in what they could see, but the other part. Think about this. What does it take, or what happens in your life that you stop trusting God? You break that relationship with God. The Judahites, the people of Judah, had broken their relationship with God. They didn't trust God the way they should have. That means that their relationship with God was broken. And so that's what God meant when He said, I will be your God. If if you are in a good relationship with me, I'll be your God. And you don't have anything to worry about. The fact that the people of Judah refused to trust God meant they didn't have a good relationship with Him. That was what was really the problem. It wasn't there in a, It wasn't just that they couldn't see God, although that was part of it. It wasn't just that they were afraid. It was that they didn't have faith. They lost that faith. And that happens to us too, doesn't it? Sometimes we lose faith because that relationship with God gets broken. And that's when we turn to ourselves. That's when we turn to other things on this world to help us. That's why it's important to keep your relationship with God strong. And now we have a great way to keep our relationship with God strong because we have Jesus Christ. He is the intercessor. He is the intermediary. And we should always be turning to Jesus. We should always be trusting in Him. Because we have Him to intercede for us. The Israelites had to wait for the high priest to intercede for them. Right? They couldn't just go to God on their own. The high priest had to go to God for them. Or the prophet. They couldn't go to God themselves. 
But we have Jesus Christ, so we can go to God every single day with our prayers. And we need to have that faith, and that faith needs to remain strong. And that's the lesson to us today, is the reason the Judites refused to trust God and wanted to get help from Egypt is because their relationship with God was broken. And they did not trust Him the way they should. So let's see what continues in verses 2 and 3. Now, in verses 2 and 3, the prophet gets a little bit sarcastic. He says, he's basically saying, you think Egypt is so wise in their military strength and their ability to save you. But he says this in verse 2, but he also is wise and brings disaster. Now, here he's talking about God. When he says he, he says God is also wise and brings disaster. He, God, does not go back on what he says. He will not rise up, or he will rise up against the house of the wicked and against the allies of evildoers. Egyptians are men, not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord raises his hand to strike, the helper will stumble and the one who is helped will fall. Both will perish together. So think about that. You have on the one side the Egyptians, You've got a strong military. They're, they're pretty smart in the ways of war. They've conquered a lot of countries. And so they could probably do some damage to Assyria. They could probably help, uh, help Judah out. But think about this. On the other side, you have God the Creator, who is Lord over all armies. We've already seen that in, in the previous chapters. God is the Lord of armies. So why would you go to a human army... When you've got God, who is the Lord of all armies, on your side. And the other thing is, there's, a, there's an implied uh, consequence in this verse where it says, He brings disaster. If you are not faithful to God, if you break your relationship with God, if you break that covenant with God, He will bring disaster. He's already said this in the previous chapters. He said, I'm going to pronounce judgment on Syria. I'm going to pronounce judgment on Israel. I'm going to pronounce judgment on Assyria. I'm going to pronounce judgment on Tyre. I'm going to pronounce judgment on everybody. And so Israel, or Judah rather, has seen this, and they have seen this happen in their own lives, and yet they still refuse to trust God, knowing that He can bring disaster. So that was the consequence. If you don't trust God, there will be disaster. It's not a there might be disaster. It's not a, there's a possibility of disaster. There will be disaster. That's the consequence of not following God. It brings disaster. Because God will not be mocked. And God does not take that thing lightly. He does not take the breaking of His covenant lightly. So when you break that covenant with God, when you break your relationship with God, there will be disaster. There will be consequences for your actions. And then He reminds... The Judites, what he has done before. He will rise up against, against the house of the wicked and against the allies of evildoers. Why are you afraid of the evildoers? Why are you afraid of the house of the wicked? God has already proven time and time again he's going to rise up against them. That he will take them out. That he will wipe them out. Look what he did for the Israelites when they came to the land that he had promised them. Had a whole bunch of evil nations that didn't follow God. What did he do to them? He wiped them out. What did he do to the Israelites who failed to follow him when they worshipped that golden calf? He wiped them out. 
God has proven time and time again throughout the Bible that He's not going to allow the wicked to flourish. He's not going to allow the wicked to overtake His people. And so we trust in God because He has promised us that He will rise up against the house of the wicked. He will take out the evildoers. He's promised us this. And we know that God's promises are always true. Now you say, well, what about these people that uh, live their lives of evil and they, they always prosper and they have money and power and wealth and they never have any consequences? Well, that's true. Here on earth, it's hard to see sometimes why God allows evil to flourish. And we see it in our own day. Or we see it in our own time right now. A lot of people who are flourishing. But in the end, their evil will bring disaster. Whether it's here on this earth or when they face judgment before God after they die. And that's the promise that we know will absolutely be true. Even if they don't face judgment here on earth, they will face judgment when they leave this earth. That's true. And so those who are wicked, those who are the house of the wicked, will always perish because they are, they are against God. They have proven they are against God. And so that's the lesson to us. You don't want to be against God. You don't want to be on the other side from God. Because if you're on the other side from God, you're on the losing team. Guaranteed every time. So always be on God's side. Always be faithful to Him. And in verse 3, he just reminds the Judah, people of Judah, the Egyptians are men. They're not your God. They didn't bring you out of Egypt. They didn't wipe out Pharaoh's army. They didn't wipe out the city of Jericho. They didn't give you this land of milk and honey. They have not provided for you for all of your history. I'm God. Not the Egyptians. Not their horses, not their chariots, not their army. They have not saved you. I'm the one who saved you. Always be, remind, always be mindful that God is the one who saves. It's nice to have things here on earth that can help us. Like a good job, nice house, uh, support structure, you know, things that can, that can allow us to flourish. It's nice to have those things. But always be mindful that nothing helps or nothing saves us except God. God is the only one who saves. Everything we have comes from Him. It is all from Him. And we need to always be mindful that nothing is built on the strength of our right arm, but only through God's blessing and mercy. And so that's the lesson to us, that do not put your faith in these things of the world. Uh, moving forward to verses 4 and 5, he continues his theme of protection. God is laying out what he will do for Judah to protect them. For this is what the Lord said to me, as a lion or young lion growls over its prey, when a band of shepherds is called out against it, and is not terrified by the shouting or subdued by their noise, so the Lord of armies will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like hovering birds, so the Lord of armies will protect Jerusalem. By protecting it, he will rescue it. By passing over it, he will deliver it. So this is God telling Judah he will protect them. He will provide for them. There's an interesting video that's been circulating around the net this week. Uh, this fella in the West, I don't know if he's in California, Oregon, somewhere out there. But he was walking down this trail through the woods out in the middle of nowhere. And this mountain lion started following him. You may have seen this video. But th he has this video. This mountain lion follows him for like five miles. It just keeps hovering around him. It pretends to attack, and then it backs off, but it keeps following him. And he's walking backwards, and you have to know that he was terrified for his life. 
Because here's a mountain lion that could eat him with without even shaking, you know, without even blinking. And it's following him. It's not leaving him alone. It follows him for a full six minutes on the video. And finally, he reaches down and picks up a rock, throws a rock, and the mountain lion runs away. That's, that's what it took. It finally took the guy picking up a rock and throwing it at him. But imagine how terrified he must have been. This mountain lion is just stalking him. It's coming after him. Now, imagine that you had prayed and asked God to protect you, and the mountain lion finally left you alone. And that's what God says He will do for us. He says, you may be stalked by a lion. You may have a whole bunch of lions running around you, preparing to eat you. But I am on your side, and I will protect you. The shepherds can't protect you. The shepherds make noise. The shepherds try to frighten the lions away, but that doesn't do anything. But I will protect you because I am the Lord your God. And you are my people. And so that's the power that we have on our side. When the lions are stalking you, when the lions are seeking to devour you, then God will protect you. That is, the, that is what we have faith in. And people say, how can you have faith in God when you can't even see Him? How can you have faith in God when you've never been able to touch Him or talk to Him? How can you have that kind of faith? Well, because He's promised it. And we know that God will do what He promises. That's a fact. And so we have faith. And the world will never understand that faith. That's the thing. The world will never understand why we have faith in God. Why do you have faith that the Bible is God's word? It was just written by a bunch of men, right? Why do you have faith that Jesus Christ can save you from your sin? He was just a mythical figure, right? Or he was just a man, right? They will never understand our faith. And that's why the world struggles to come to terms with Jesus Christ and what he has done for them. Because they cannot understand why we have faith. It's foolishness to them. That's exactly right. But we have the faith because we have experienced Christ's love in our lives. We have experienced His blessings. We have experienced His guidance. And that's only because we have that faith that He is who He says He is. And so we have faith no matter how foolish it may appear to the world. We have faith. And that's what He's saying to the people of Judah. Have faith in Me. I have protected you for all these years. I have been your God for all these years. The lions have sought to devour you, but I have prevented that from happening. <clears throat> all these nations around you have sought to kill you, but I've been on your side. Have faith in me. Don't have faith in Egypt. Egypt is not going to protect you. Egypt is not going to save you. Have faith in me. And then he goes ahead and he says, <clears throat> like hovering birds... So the Lord of armies will protect Jerusalem. By protecting it, he will rescue it. By passing over it, he will deliver it. What is that a reference to by passing over? What do you think that refers to? Exactly. He's reminding the Israelites. And they know this well because the Israelites were very well-versed in their history. They heard these stories their whole lives. They knew the story of the Passover. They knew... That, hmm? They celebrated it. They celebrated it. They knew that God had protected them when the angel of death had wiped out all the firstborn in Egypt. They knew that. And so God is reminding them, I'm the one that protected you from the angel of death. When the angel of death came over, I made him pass over you. Nobody else could do that. The Egyptians couldn't do that. 
The Assyrians couldn't do that. I'm the one that made the angel of death pass over you. And I am like a mother bird. Um, have you ever seen a mother bird protect her nest? I, we have some trees downtown Montgomery. And there are mockingbirds that build their nests in those trees. Those things are very aggressive. When you, I've been attacked by them before. They will dive bomb your head. I've been hit by them before. They will really dive bomb you because they are protecting their children. This is our nest. These are my babies. You're not going to attack the, my babies, so I will protect you. And so here's this tiny little bird. I could swat it out of the sky if I wanted to, but here's this tiny little bird who sees me and says, I'm a threat, and he attacks me. And that's what God is saying. He says, like the mother bird protects the nest, I'm going to protect you. And nothing can come against you. Nothing formed against you shall stand. There is nothing on this earth or under the earth that can keep us from the love of God. That is the promise. That is why we have faith. That is why we can survive all the chaos around us. When everything looks bleak. When everybody else is giving in to despair and hopelessness. We can still stay strong because our trust is not in the things of this world. Our trust is in God. Through Jesus Christ. And that's what the people of Judah had forgotten. They forgot to put their trust in the only one who could save them. And so they turned to the Assyrians. And they turned to the Egyptians. They turned to anybody they thought could help them. But they didn't turn to the one that could really help them. Verse 6-7, through seven, he continues his theme of redemption and, and salvation. Return to the one the Israelites have greatly rebelled against. For on that day, every one of you will, will reject the silver and gold items that your own hands, idols rather, that your own hands have sinfully made. So he reminds them that the Israelites, and remember the Israelites just got wiped out. Israelites got invaded by Assyria. They've been carried off into captivity. The temple was destroyed. All the, all the items in the temple have been looted. So they are being reminded, if you look at Jerusalem, it's been wiped out. It's no more. The people there are just a small remnant of what was there. It's just a little bit left. And he says, they rebelled against me. That's why they got wiped out. They rebelled against me. So don't you do the same thing. I am still your God. I'm still with you. But if you rebel against me, you're going to suffer the same fate Israel did. So do not rebel against me. And if you do, or if you turn back to me rather, if you seek redemption... Everybody will reject the silver and gold idols that your own hands have sinfully made. God is reminding the Israelites of the first commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And the reason he said that is because he knows that these clay idols, these silver idols, these golden idols that everybody else worships, they're not real. He's reminding the people of Judah there's only one God. You can build an idol, but it's just a man-made idol. You can, you can pray to this man-made idol, but it's not going to help you because it's not real. It represents nothing. And so he's reminding the Israelites, or the Judites rather, that it, you had better turn back to me and forsake these idols. Otherwise, you will face the same judgment that Israel did. So turn away from your idols. What are some things that we have today that are idols for us? All of the above. All of the above? <laughs> I was just thinking when you were saying that, how uh, the older, Lance, at least Lance and I feel like this, the 
older we get, the less important things become. Mm -hmm. And you realize what is important. Yep. What are some other things that might be idols for us? Family. Anything you do. Anything. Anything. I mean, it's like John said, when you're young, you think certain things are important. I remember my kids coming up, you know, thought them playing sports was important. And I look back now and it's kind of meaningless. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just meaningless. So, yeah. you know, things you think are important aren't. Yeah. That's exactly right. When you get older, you look back and realize, I wish I hadn't put so much emphasis on that. Yeah. You know, but everybody goes through those things. For me, it was comic books. I can tell you all this. I, I bought a bunch of comic books when I was younger, and I kept them in bins. And I decided recently to sell them because they were just taking up space. I wasn't ever going to read them again. I didn't have anybody to give them to. So I was like, I'll just sell them. And there was a fellow at Prattville Pickers that said he'd buy them for me. I want you to know, when I started flipping through my bins to count, because I'd never counted them before, I had more than 2,200 comics. I'd collected a whole bunch. I mean, I'd just go to the store every week and just, here's a few comics here, a few, and it adds up. But I want you to know, here's the thing. Uh, those comic books, they were probably anywhere from a dollar to three dollars, depending on the time I bought them. But nowadays, because they had been mass produced, and they weren't really that worth that much, they were probably worth 15, 20 cents a comic. So that's, that's just a lesson to me, that, and I understand that now. But then I was just like, ooh, it's fun. It's a comic. Let me buy it and read it. But now I understand it. That was worthless. That, that I paid all that much money for was worthless. And it didn't matter a hill of beans. And other people have things, you know, we all do the same thing. We hold on to things that we think are important. We think, I'm going to keep this because one day it will be worth a lot of money. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not going to be worth anything. Uh, and, and let me ask you this too, because and I know time's winding down, but is can church be an idol? Sure. Yeah. Sometimes I think Christians fall into the trap of being in love with the church and not the God that church is supposed to be for. I think we, it's all right to be in love with the church, but I think our definition of the church is not always correct. Right. We forget about. We are the church, and we start thinking about the building mm-hmm. and the things you do here. That's not really, you know, not really what the church should be doing. Right. You know, the church. We are the church. I exactly. Say like up there at the church. Well, I'm the church. <laughs> I'm at the church we're too. The church, so, <laughs> no, wherever we're at. Exactly. Is, is where the church is. Yeah. And I think some people come to church just to be seen. I think there are some Christians that come to church just to be seen. They think it's the place to be. And they forget why they're supposed to be at church in the first place. And this goes back to what we've talked about before. Well, I don't like to go to that church because they don't do anything for me. <laughs> it's not what you, the church does for you. It's what you do for the church. We've talked about that. And so I think church can be an idol too. We, we get so caught up in the things that the church does, all the, all the ministries and all the things that we do we forget the main reason we have church in the first place the main reason is to worship the main reason is to fellowship the main reason is to lift everyone else up to encourage everyone else the ministries are great god definitely wants us to do those ministries but that's not why the church exists the church exists for the purpose of worshiping god that's this primary purpose 
And we forget that sometimes. And I think there's a lot of Christians that just, and there's some politicians that go to church just to be seen. We know that. There's politicians that think, well, if I'm going to get those votes, I've got to go to church. But it's not just politicians that do it. Some people go just to be seen because businessmen go to church to get contacts. So, yeah. So I think sometimes church can be an idol too. But anything that distracts us from God is an idol. Anything that keeps us from following Him and worshiping Him is an idol. All right, let's hurry through this last uh, last couple of verses. Then Assyria will fall, not by human sword. A sword will devour him, but not one made by man. He will flee from the sword. His young men will be put to forced labor. His rock will pass away because of fear, and his officers will be afraid because of the signal flag. This is the Lord's declaration, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Now, if you read 1 Kings, um, I'm sorry, 2 Kings, Chapter 1, no, where was it? 2 Kings 19, that's where it was. 2 Kings 19, that's the one. If you read through 2 Kings 19, you will see the fate of Assyria. Assyria came against Judah, and they were camped outside the city gates. And the king was Sennacherib. That's a fun name, isn't it? Sennacherib. Sounds like something you get a hard candy or something. Um, Anyway... King Sennacherib and his army were camped outside the gates of of Jerusalem. And they were ready to invade. They had a big army. Jerusalem didn't have a chance. King Hezekiah turned to God and said, God save us. And what happened? If you read 2 Kings 19, you will see that an angel of death, here's the angel of death again, came out of Jerusalem, went around the army of of Assyria, and killed 180,000 men. Jerusalem's armies did not do that. Egyptian armies did not do that. The Lord God sent the angel of death and took care of the Assyrian army. And the footnote to that is King Sennacherib went home with the remnants of his army, and when he got home, his two sons murdered him. So Assyria was a great nation. They were powerful. They were wealthy. They had a great army. And they were just wiping out everybody they came in contact with. They were taking over everything until they came up against God. And God said, this is it. This is where you stop. Because a man of faith, Hezekiah, called upon my name. And I will be his God and he will be my people and I will save him. And so the angel of death wiped out 180,000 soldiers. Now for an army in the biblical times, that was a lot of men. That was easily more than half the army. I don't know exactly the numbers, but I have to believe that was easily more than half that army wiped out in one night. And nobody knew why. They woke up and there were dead bodies everywhere. What happened? Who knows? God knows. But that was the thing. The king of Assyria was wiped out in one night because of God. He came up against God. So if God can save the Jerusalem, people of Jerusalem from an army numbering more than 180,000, however many he had, then what do we have reason to fear for? Why do we have reason to fear? So, the world is, so our country is, is having all kinds of problems with riots and unrest and political strife. God is still our God. So our economy might be struggling at times and we might have trouble 
making ends meet. God is still our God. So things might not be so great in your family. You might be having trouble with certain parts of your family that might not be going as great as you wish. Doesn't matter. God is still our God. Doesn't matter the circumstances. You know, my dad might have cancer. My dad is going to have to probably undergo chemo. And I know we've all dealt with that. And family members have dealt with that. But I'm not worried. Because God is still our God. He is still in control. He's still the same God that wiped out 180,000 men and saved the city of Jerusalem. He's still the same God that wiped out the army of Pharaoh and saved the people. He's still our God. So I'm not going to worry. He's still in control. And that's God's message to us today. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. doesn't matter how big the army is. doesn't matter if there's a whole pride of lions running around your camp trying to eat you. It doesn't matter. I am your God and I will protect you. I will save you. And His ultimate display of salvation is the cross with Jesus Christ. When we had no way of getting to heaven, when we had no way of fixing our sin problem, when we had no way to escape death, God made a way. He sent Jesus Christ to do what we could not do for ourselves. That is how we know that we will be protected. That is why we have faith that God is in control. Jesus Christ is the ultimate display of God's faithfulness. And that's the only thing we need to point to. How do we have faith? How do we believe that the Bible is real? How do we believe that God is still in control? Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all we have to point to. And that's enough. Thank you for being here. Billy's going to come and lead us in a prayer time.